Welcome back. It's Tom Bell here. So grateful to have you here for another episode. We're talking all things success, purpose, and passions. And I really am so grateful that you have tuned in for another episode. I am super excited about today's guest, Patrick Skeen, a chief creative officer, storyteller, author, speaker, curious optimist, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for for tuning in. Um, And for those who haven't met you yet, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, I'm a Celt of Scottish and Irish background. I'm the founder of multicultural marketing agency, Cultural Pulse, and we work with over 120 multicultural communities across Australia, engaging them, connecting them with brands and sports. I tell a, I'm a teller of stories uh, for The Guardian Australia and other, uh, other media and a lot of brands you would have heard of. I love sport and everything to do with diversity. So I'm all about food, music, culture, architecture and history and, and really grateful to be living in a multicultural society that gives me access to that. I'm a massive bookworm. I'm a father of two beautiful humans and three beautiful chickens. I love ancient history and particularly the Sumerians. I love uh, reading about the original and first civilization. And most days I tell stories on LinkedIn, which I think is a positive storytelling platform, unlike anything the world has seen. Mm, did you you really do put out some interesting stuff on LinkedIn? That's where I um, was lucky enough to sort of spot your your journey. And and really, when you are putting posts on, it doesn't take um, you know long to sort of just stop and have a little bit of a read and have a have a bit of an understanding. And uh, um, even just a little bit off air, we were sort of talking about how um, you have some inspiration that you uh, work in. Um, you know, when you're when you're creating your stories. Um, you know, I don't know again to make you repeat yourself, but um, I found that incredible interesting. I don't know if you wanted to touch on what, what it is that, uh, that you know, you, has inspired you and in, in how that sort of works. Well, I'm inspired really from um, everything I, I, I see around me. I mean, LinkedIn is, um, it's what I've ever, always dreamed of. I can't get around and have coffee with all my friends, but, you know, what I put on LinkedIn is probably what I would be talking to them about. And this platform that's come up that I don't have to go through an editor. Sometimes I always feel that when I'm working on The Guardian or, or, or in other publications that, you know, you can't be yourself sometimes because um, the editors take certain bits out of it, you know, which is like losing a limb. Mm. So, um, you know, there's 700 million people on this platform and it's positive, unlike some of the other platforms that I've, I've been on, um, where negativity can be, uh, it can sap your energy for the day. I'm always inspired what people are doing. I'm always amazed by what people do for jobs. And LinkedIn just seems to feed that perfectly. And, and I get to give a little gift to people every day. Some people, you know, haven't found their thing that they want to do. You know, I'll be telling stories for the rest of my life. That's what gives me energy. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm up till 3 a.m. in the morning. I don't even know I'm up to 3 a.m., but I'm just loving it so much, loving writing stories and telling stories that I, I lose track of time. And that's one sure way to know you're doing something you love. Wow. So can, if we went back, if we went back in time, like is there a defining moment where, where you hit that um, you know, it resonated that you knew that you were a storyteller. Were you in year three, hands on hips, telling the story in front of the class, or did it come later? Like, how did how did you come to know that that was your thing? I had a, uh, I went to a Morris Brothers school, and I had a teacher called um, Brother Anthony. I'll never forget him. He had incredibly high standards in English class, and I remember him saying to me, you're a, you're a storyteller waiting to happen. I'm going to force you to get up in the in front of the class and, and talk and tell stories. And I thought that was a major imposition on my uh, privacy at the time. And really, I didn't 
didn't like him for a while there for forcing me to do that. But I've, I've come to learn that there is some versions of tough love where the greatest love of all is where people force you to do something that they know is going to be good for you. And it's one of my uh, ambitions to find out if he's still alive to, to actually go back and thank him because he was a real pivotal person in me stepping up um, and not just muttering my stories to my friends, actually to, to learning the craft of sharing them. Mm. And has that been a, not only have you now um, been edged along on that path and, and, you know, you can probably trace it back to that moment. Do you feel like you maybe now have that desire to help point out for other people that you might come across friends, family, if you see something that they're very good at, are you also a person that whispers in their ear, Hey, did you know you're good at this thing? Like just out of curiosity. I'd probably have a hundred people in my orbit. Um, I've lived in uh, Australia, uh, China, uh, New York, in the US and a bit, bit of time in LA. I've lived in Vancouver for a long time. I lived in Jakarta and Indonesia. So you come across a, a range of successful and unsuccessful people. But there's probably been a hundred people that I've gotten into their ear about something. Uh, maybe it's something I've learned or maybe something I see in them that, they're, um, that they don't see. And that work, that broad experience across the world makes you see patterns in certain things, helps you out and illuminates certain things. And probably a hundred people that I've um, been a brother Anthony to, uh, friends, enemies even in a way when you, you know, have taught someone you know, a lesson on the sporting field or um, someone you've clashed with a little bit, but they've gone, you know, come and said to me 10 years later, that was actually the best thing that ever happened. And, you know, when you fired me from that job, when they were being lazy or I caught them, you know, doing something and, and we all need to kick up the bum at some stage or really gentle, just a gentle tweak um, and whisper into someone ears that, ear that you believe they could do something because we all have imposters syndrome and, um, you know, we're all trying to shake it off at various stages. And when people believe in you or people take a punt on you, it's, um, it's an enormous boost. And yeah, so I've, I've paid forward Brother Anthony. What Brother Anthony did for me, I've paid forward many times. And I've got mm. a lot of different Brother Anthonys in my life, but in, in storytelling, he has, a, he has a particular place. So interesting. I love the idea of paying it forward. Um, so look, you've, you've, you've had some amazing jobs. You've gone around the world. Um, you're living, you know, your, your purpose, it sounds, you know, the things that you're um, passionate about, you're immersed in. Um, so it'd be interesting for me to understand from your perspective, what's your definition of success? I think there's, um, there's externally. So my defini definition of success is, is being valuable to others and inspiring others, um, inspiring them through words and sometimes inspiring them through your, through your own actions. And I think internally it's, it's building on what your parents gave you. And uh, in some societies, there's, there's parent worship, effectively, if you look at the Polynesian or, or some Asian societies where they worship their, their parents. Um, in the West, we you know, tend not to have as that close a relationship and you know, can't wait to fly the coop. And um, we're more the nuclear family structure than the extended family structure. But building on what your parents gave you, and that comes very naturally to migrants who want to you know, build on the on 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 the punt on the um, on the sacrifice their parents made, often coming down here into a, a a world where they're not speaking in first language and have their own success curtailed and building on that success. But I think if you can make your parents happy and build on what they gave you, and that's why I'm always moved when I see a child that's the first person in their family to go to university. I really feel that that's you know such a a brick by brick building piece until someone gets that that first time. And they might have been, you know, if you came from Italy, you might have been 
you know, locked out of owning land for a thousand years through the feudal system there. But you, um, you know, you buy land in Australia and sort of and, and, and break cycles and start new cycles. And I think that's um, that's good. A big one for me is participation. I, I always like people to be involved in things. And, and, and part of that is keeping important institutions alive, libraries, sporting clubs, museums, societies, even political parties right now. If either of these political parties went down, you know, and they don't have if we don't have good opposition, it's um, Know, we'll all have a lower quality of life. So I think pitching into something that is um, is bigger than you and being part of it and being part of the wins and losses of an institution, that's why in many ways football has replaced, even though religion seems to be making a comeback, it's replaced religion in many ways as far as the, rit- the seasonal rituals um, and it adds in winning and losing, um, you know, as a bit of an emotional roller coaster as well. So for me, getting out and participating is success. I think being original um, is a massive definition of success. If you can somehow uh, not be a fraud and be yourself or stop trying to be someone else, um, you know, I think as a rule, if you can be yourself and be kind, uh, things are going to, to work out for you. Another thing is meaning. Um, I think that's you know, arguably the biggest one, um, loving what you're doing and, and, and being around people that are doing their thing. There's a different aura to them and you kind of, you want that injected into your veins and you can only get that yourself um, if you're doing something. And I, I remember one night at, at 3 a.m. I was writing a story for The Guardian, a guy called Cecil Romali, who was a half Indian, uh, half Aboriginal, who was the first Asian and Aboriginal wallaby play, played rugby union for, for Australia. And I remember looking up at the clock and it was 3 a.m. And I'd entered a kind of dreamlike state when I was writing. Sometimes I sometimes I touch on it when I'm swimming or when, I, when, I, when I'm jogging and you get into a bit of the zone. Um, and I find when someone loves what they're doing and it has meaning, they, they enter that dreamlike state where they're doing, they're doing their thing. And one final one is happiness. Um, you know, happiness is the key to success. And you, know, you look at all the money in the world, you look at how miserable poor Jamie Packer was you know, trying to live up to his father's expectations you know, he basically had to be medicated to have a normal life. And that was a guy with $6 billion in the bank. So, um, you know, even the wealthiest can be, you know, dreadfully un- un- unhappy. And, you know, if you're unable to distinguish your achievements from your father's achievements, then, you know, inheriting can actually be a, a bit of a curse as well. So as Plato said, everyone, you know, be kind because everyone you meet is, 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 is fighting a battle. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, happiness just doesn't come naturally to everyone. Finding your thing is a, uh, is a miracle, but gee, you know, when someone's found it just by their, by their body language and, and aura. No, I a hundred percent agree. And I absolutely love that. I love the, the energy that people put off when they are talking about the thing that they love doing when they take the leap, typically the J curve of like not, not be, being successful in that thing is short lived because they are enjoying the journey and that happiness is there. So it feels like the fundamental part of, of what you're saying is if you can live a life that you truly love, then that is likely to be off the back of doing what you actually love doing something that's going to be impactful to others because then that you're giving. So there's like a karmatic effect. You're going to be enjoying that in, in spades backwards. Um, But it all seems to come back to a level of self-awareness to know what it is that you truly love and how you can help in the, in the world. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. There's, a lot of schools of thought, like people say, oh, it's easy for you to say, and I've got, I've got the bills and I've got my job. Um, but 
you can now do hobbies from home um, through COVID and through a range of things. It's almost like we can operate from home. You don't have to leave the house to have a side hustle. And a side hustle is often people's passion and the dream is to get the side hustle into being into being full-time. But then you you make peace with it all. I remember when I was writing my book thinking, oh, uh, imagine how much better this book would have been if I was full-time because I was working in the agency and, and, and doing creative for uh, the... I was previously CEO and I moved. You know, part of my step was to bring my partner on as CEO and, and to move to the chief creative officer in my company because that's actually what I loved. I didn't like the administration. I'd do it, but I didn't like the administration. I don't think I was the best at that. There were other people that can do that. And that letting go piece um, where you try and be everything to all people and just say, okay, um, you know, it was Bruce Lee that said, said you know, success is about the, the, the average man uh, having laser-like focus. And if you can just do one thing. So for my next book, um, which I'm just about to start to write, I'm actually getting paid up front for it, which uh, is, a, is a big tick for me because I, I didn't get that on my first book. I just paid, got paid traditional royalties. This time I'm getting paid up front, which you know shows I'm moving up the curve, and now I get to be uh, a full-time full-time writer. With I'll still do the creative stuff on the side, but uh, if you're absolutely focused, you can do creative in in a relatively short amounts of time. If you read a lot and already have a lot of information in your brain, the answers will come will will, will come naturally. But you know I, I feel sorry for people that say they're trapped. Um, you know whether it's a, a formal cage or a cage of their own of their own imagination. But there comes a time when you realize sometimes it's people for when they get to 50, sometimes when they're 40, sometimes when they have a, a brush with, uh, with death or, you know, have a major injury, their first physical setback. Um, you have to work out what, what matters in life. And it's often investing in family and friends and doing what you should, even if it means taking a notch down uh, one, one or two or getting out of the rat race, um, not trying to keep up with the Joneses, Stepping back to, you know, working part time, even um, downsizing your house, just even you simplicity, because if you're doing what you should be doing, you won't care what anybody thinks anymore. Mm. You'll have the glow. You won't be worried about anyone's feedback on you, and you know your laughter and the laughter of your children will be, you know, the greatest revenge on anyone that's putting you down or saying, you know, you should stay where they are. Often you've got people dragging you down. So I just think you, you, with some minor tweaks and there's so many advantages available now, you can, you can make money in your passion from home. You can sell your stuff on Amazon. These, these, these opportunities and channels, um, you can write on LinkedIn. You, there used to be gatekeepers that held, you know, you, if you wrote for the Herald or the Age or the Australian Financial Review, that was it. Then the web came along and now you've got LinkedIn, which has an, a potential audience of 700 million if you're good enough and if you're passionate enough. And if you're writing something that people want to read and that, that comes from, from energy and passion. Mm, mm, I absolutely love that. But, and then you like have to have had a level of courage. So you've got self-awareness to know that you like the creative thing and you're in, you know, what I think anybody could say um, or agree is, is super successful. Your top, top, top boss, you know, CEO of, of a company that you've grown um, to be able to then step out of that, that's got to take some courage because there are all of these, you know, uh, I don't know if the words aspersions or, or opinions that everybody else has, you know, that no, but this is who you are and this is what you should do. Taking a downward step, doing those things. Um, you know, it sounds like fundamentally you get it. Like you get like, so you knew that you 
and could do storytelling. You knew that thing. When do you think it happened in your life that you were like, actually, no, I understand now that I should be immersed in what matters most enough so that I can step away from a CEO role into something like, you know, chief creative officer, which just the name is super creative and awesome in its own. Like, you know, what, 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 when did you sort of know that you had to be living what mattered? I was the sales and marketing director for the Sydney Kings and um, they had never really done different multicultural nights like Philip, the Sydney Kings basketball club in, in, in the, in the national basketball league. And I remember working with multi, different multicultural communities on different multicultural theme nights. And I just remember getting up early, having extra energy. And we did one night with the Aboriginal community who loved basketball very much. And, uh, you know, I put on, uh, brought some hip hoppers down. And I just felt the love and energy. And I'd always been interested in Lionel Rose and a lot of great Aboriginal sporting heroes in Australia, because if you do your research uh, back into Australian history, the only way uh, Aboriginals could get off the missions that they were basically herded into was sport. So all of now, now they've got heroes in politics and heroes in music and heroes in a, in, in a range of uh, industries, but sport was it at the time. So I, um, basically went down to Koori Radio, walked down to Koori Radio one time and uh, the, the general manager was there and I said, um, I'm not Aboriginal. I'd like to work with some Aboriginal people, but there's so many stories in Australian Aboriginal sports history that haven't been told. And I just wore him down. He's, at first, he's, and I said, I'll do all the work. I'll do the run sheets. I'll do the research. I just want to have two Aboriginal guys with me on the, on the panel. And for eight glorious years, we told two hours, uh, two hours a week on Monday nights. Um, I got on radio and killed my public speaking uh, phobias, just squashed it through repetition. And that's why um, it's fantastic to join groups like Toastmasters who teach you how to public speak. Because public speaking is simply like riding a bike. It's about knowing your material because you fear making a mistake in, 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 in public speaking. There's some small tips like, you know, looking at the, looking at the back row where you can't really make people's faces out. But I remember at university, absolutely dreading presenting in front of the class. Everyone's like, you're an outgoing guy. You know, you're always chatting away and making jokes and telling stories. Why don't you like it in, in public? But I remember probably a year into that Aboriginal um, radio sports radio program we went out to 165 stations right across the national indigenous radio service for two hours a week we dig up these old boxers and cricketers and rugby league players and and get them on the line and and, and just tell their stories and i remember um about a year into that going to speak at a conference for my my work which is you know engaging multicultural communities through sport that's what i was doing at the time and i just remember not feeling any fear getting up to the podium and was like yeah i know my stuff um, I've presented a good uh, format. I followed the. I actually presented in the Heroes Heroes Journey, which is uh, my favourite book in the world by by Joseph Campbell. And I remember I had no nothing. It was like I'd been cured, and I realised, aha, it's because I know my stuff. Um, I know people want are interested in hearing my stuff. I've bludgeoned my way to uh, subject matter expertise, and that's it. I'm never going to fear public speaking again. Now I put my hand up for it. I can't wait for it. I love it. Sometimes I even challenge myself and only get prepared on the day. Um, so, you know, that forces me into, um, you know, just it forces me into synthesizing down to, to, the, to the essentials. And I just remember um, from that point on, I felt like Superman whenever I, I got to a podium. And I never, ever thought uh, when I was younger, um, it was a mixture of cowardice and fear and worried about what people are thinking of you. 
And then when you realize people, the mistakes you think you make uh, up there, people, it doesn't matter. It's only the way that you made them feel at the end. They won't remember a single thing you said in three days outside. You know, you try and craft one major statement that they can stick with. But what they'll remember is you made them laugh. There's a whole bunch of things. I throw jokes in early. And someone once taught me that if they're, if they're laughing, they're listening and, and how true that is. Um, so there's just, you know, different little little tricks to the public speaking, different tricks to, to storytelling to keep them compelled. But there's neuroscience out now that says that we naturally fade after four, four to eight minutes. But storytelling uh, tricks some oral circuits into uh, extending that, that focus. And it's only storytelling that does that. And I remember Steve Jobs saying storytellers are the most important people in the world because once we're at full data, uh, the stories about brands uh, will be the only thing that we can we can differentiate. And it's funny, people say, oh, he's a master storyteller. He's just, everyone's a storyteller. When you're at a job interview, when you're talking about your company, when you're talking about whatever product you're selling, all you're doing all day is selling a story, selling a vision, um, trying to put the customer into their own hero's journey with your product. Mm. Um, you know, they, yeah, there was a problem. The customer went on the journey, uh, had to change, go through turmoil of changing and switching products. And then they come back and, you know, whether it's Dropbox or whatever the product is and they can share the magic uh, crowdfunding, whatever magic they can go and share with people, uh, how they've been successful. So storytelling is everything. We think in stories. Um, stories are, are what it is to be human. So people, some of the best storytellers don't even know they're, they're storytellers. I just like to formalize it and, uh, and actually formally tell a story every day, but we're doing it all the time in our heads and, 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 and in our work and everything we do. What I love about that too is that you, it sounds like you're so compelled and drawn and driven by the storytelling itself that it, you were able to override, you know, what is some people were more scared of um, public speaking um, than death, uh, which is just kind of interesting to me, especially to me, um, because I love public speaking and always have. But it's like you, you were willing to go through that challenge of going on radio, which pe- people might freeze, all sorts of things. The fears, the storyteller in you was enough to that the story had to be told and you wanted to be there to share the story and, and uncover it and, and let it unfold. That was enough for you to go through what could be you know, one of the biggest fears on earth, like that's powerful. Yeah, it was powerful. And I, uh, and once you surprise yourself once like that, because a lot of people think, you know, you're, you can't, tiger ch- can't change its stripes or you, know, you get to the age of 25 and you're pretty much in lockdown as far as your key strengths and weaknesses, just to unfold some personal change like that. You know, once you c- convince yourself of one change, uh, it opens up the possibility for, for, for a lot more. Like I've always been messy. Well, you, you know, you can actually change that. Um, you know, I'm not good at, uh, you know, I'm not good at reading. Well, you can actually change that by just reading books that are page turners in, in, in your world and just, you know, go to your friends and, or, 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 or find books that, that are about the thing you love the most. My, my little boy now will, will, will read books about Minecraft. He'll just read them all night. I've tricked him into reading by buying, you know, 20 Minecraft books in a row. And he's been powering through. I also uh, turn on the uh, the subtitles when we're watching movies as well. Uh, that's a free tip to any parents out there. Turn on the English subtitles and they read every word. You, you'll get two hours of reading in a, in, in a day, sneakily. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's, um, it's about the battle with yourself. You've got these uh, negative and there'll be external people that 
push you onto it and there'll be external people that say, who do you think you are? Uh, and they're often paralyzed in their own um, inadequacies and things they haven't done. And they try and drag you back into their world. Um, you know, a sort of shared misery environment. And that goes on to some things I'd like to discuss, you know, further on about surrounding yourself with good people is, is so crucial. I, <clears throat> Jim Rohn, you know, said you are the average of your five best friends. And at the first I thought, you know, no, it's about 50 or 60, but those five best friends that you spend a lot, you spend a disproportionate time with them. You try and meet them every week or month. You, you really work them hard into your schedule and they, if they're positive and support what you do and, uh, and, and get around and, 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 and turn your failures into positives, that's your valuable, that's your squad, that's your pit crew, your support team. Mm. Uh, if you have, ne- if you have negative friends that, second guess you and say, Oh no, you shouldn't leave that job or, or, or make you second guess yourself because you've, you've moved into that position that you've moved them into that position of authority in your life where you're going to take their word seriously. Well, they can hold you back your entire life to the point you go into depression or you get to 60 and you say, Oh, I should have done X or I should have done Y because if you really like something and you fail, it's the most glorious failure. Cause then if you return to your old thing, you at least have the satisfaction of saying, I gave it a crack. If you want to be an astronaut, one in you know, 50 million people become astronauts. If you give it your absolute best, go to Florida, get fit, do everything you can, and you might, your, your eyes might let you down or something. Um, there's a huge satisfaction in having given it a go as well, if it's a, particularly if it's a lofty one. Mm. Uh, and at least you put it to bed, at least you, you know. And one, I'm a, I'm a boxing fanatic. I find the storytelling boxing to be unbelievable. You know, a lot of poor kids bad education, you know, abusive households, find a, a, a father figure in the trainer who believes in them. And then they all of a sudden they've got a, a world title belt around their, um, around their waist and they're buying their parents, uh, you know, and boxing is, um, you know, just an, ex- just an example of dropping someone in with a positive influence and just seeing the remarkable results that can come from that, from that one person that, that believes in you relentlessly. It's uh I don't think there's anything more powerful. Mm, I really love um, that whole thing. And if, if we take the pit crew example, you know, if you have the right people around you, it's like all of the, the tires are changed, the cars refueled and away you go. And it's not necessarily their responsibility to look after you, but we are, you know, influenced by the people that are around us. And so potentially if you've got toxic people in your life and you are, you know, you pull into the pits and then one person doesn't really bother filling it up. They don't really care. Yep. One person doesn't change the tire and you fly out of the, out of the, on, onto the track and you're only with two wheels and sparks are flying back behind the car. Well, it might be time to actually stop and say, Hey, like whilst these people are great, people maybe this pit crew is not the right role for them and it might be better off to move to other people that are better off serving me and and me serving them when i when it's their turn to be in the car and and me giving that love back um there's no harm in saying that so it's have you found that you've actively moved away from different people and tried to tend that garden of friends carefully i think that's the most important thing You, you you must create your own bubble because if you have negative people in your life catastrophists it's tough to have a positive life. If someone, if one of my friends is negative, sometimes I can't write that day. Um, it takes my mojo away. So my brain power then goes into solving that problem and thinking about problems and worst case scenarios. And if you've got a creative mind, when it goes to a negative place, it's, it's almost irredeemable. So you have that power to construct your own environment. And if you can't remove someone from your life that's negative, you've just got to flood them with positivity. 
and give them the artillery they need to tip the scale. Sometimes you've got a family member you can't escape from. Everybody has their tipping point towards positivity. Everyone wants to be positive. Everyone wants to win. And sometimes you've just got to put extra into that person if they can't be there. But you've got to build your own squad. And, you know, like that pit crew, the squad members, they may never meet, but they're actually on the same team. And you want to be on other people's pit crew um, as well and, and be someone they confide in and come to for positivity. Because you have, you know, you get to a stage when you've you know, finished university and you started work, you really get to choose. You're not compulsorily with anyone at, um, at school anymore. Uh, people in the office, you know, you don't have to live with them. Um, you know, you're, you can carve your own thing, but I just think it's worth being around people you admire. That's the best one. You know, the, probably the five friends I've made recently of people I've sought out because I admire what, what they do and you can be a little bit intimidated, but, but by osmosis, their behaviors seep into yours. And that's just an amazing thing when, you know, and some people, your behaviors seep into them. It's, and it's amazing. Just those little, Little, little tips, like I've gotten a lot of people back onto reading books. It's a, it's a passion of mine. They say, I'm on Audible, this. But you, there's 40% less retention. A lot of studies have shown. And I, I know it myself when I'm, because when I write a book, I have to read 100 books or listen to 100 books. And I don't get as much out of listening. Uh, but the physical reading and, and what you don't know is subconsciously watching that bookmark go through the book. Um, there's a finishing piece to it as well, which is, is very powerful. Um, that I don't think you get, you know, in like a percentage moving down, just the physical bookmark, you're carrying the book around. Um, so I encourage people to read books because I read books relentlessly. And, um, and that's the only way I think someone once said the only difference between you and the, and the you of five years ago is, is the books you've read and, and the people you've met. So that's the power of networking and the power of, you know, one of the ingredients to my success is just relentless reading and and, and up, upskilling. And I think a book can bring profound change unlike any uh, other medium, um, like Atomic Habits has changed people's lives. Uh, for me, it was Joseph Campbell, The Hero with uh, a Thousand Faces. And that's um, a book I recommend to anybody listening. It's, it's It came out in the 1940s, but he deeply studied all of the myths of all the ancient cultures and found that they all aligned to a single prototype. And that's a hero uh, a reluctant hero, like we all are reluctant heroes, gets picked for the quest. And part of that is, you know, you've got to take that opportunity when it comes. Uh, he or she goes on, goes over the threshold, says goodbye, gets out of the comfort zone, faces trials, faces up to the dragon, gets mentored by these people that just mysteriously appear in our life when we, when we, take, we take a risk. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that, you know, they say leap and the net will appear. Well, it's leap and people that help you will appear. That's what actually um, actually happens. And then slaying the dragon, that point where you have to be brave and then you get to bring back the magic potion to your people or bring it back to yourself. I can do it. You know, I don't have to be held back by that person or um, I can be a partner in the law firm or I can uh, run a pottery business because that's all I think about and all I've ever dreamed of. And the, the magic of that book is it's a, whilst it's a history book, uh, documenting how all these different myths from different countries all followed the same template. Um, it's actually a metaphor for yourself that we all should go on the, the hero. We all have a hero's journey if we choose to answer the call. Mm, gosh, that is powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, you've talked about all these different aspects of your success. Uh, you know, are there any other ingredients that you think have, have, you know, contributed to your success other than what you've already shared? Um, one is curbing my um, animal spirits. Um, 
and you know you get into something and you, and you get too passionate and sometimes people aren't on the same level as you and sometimes you got to curb it back or you can you know um alienate good collaborators and we all need um we all need good good collaborators um and the other um you know it's obviously focus is is a big one there's something miraculous about focus and that turns average men into into superheroes and uh, that final one is, is is persistence. And you know, there's a, there's a saying in a few cultures. You know, beware the persistent man. And, and determination and ambition are exciting, and they get you really excited at the start of a project or a new venture. Um, but determination and ambition, they need a, a vehicle for the journey, and, and that vehicle is persistence. Mm, oh, I like that. And so, from like a persistence perspective like what is you're in the harder times of your life you know it sounds like the storytelling thing in the, in the public speaking one drove you through but is there anything else that you're sort of telling yourself or thinking about when you're in those harder times to sort of keep yourself going i lost my mother when i was 18 and uh it was a terrifying period for me after that i was an absolute mummy's boy but she's given me the, the greatest gift um of all and I, I, I use her memory and her teachings like, uh, like my North Star. Um, she worked hard to develop a love of books for me um, and a love of di- diversity and compassion. And for the last 10 years of her life, she taught severely mental disabled kids. And I used to go and visit those kids. And, uh, and now I, when I think about her work and those students who were just bathed in gratitude to be alive and some of them couldn't talk and some couldn't pick things up, um, but I'm able to use, I, I've got those memories hard wired into my brain and I'm able to reframe my perspective on almost any situation now um, outside death, which sort of sits and looms as, as something that nothing can really prepare you for. Um, but anything that I'm going through, um, any tough time or whatever, I remember losing my eyesight and feeling halfway through writing my book, my eyesight, when I started to have to wear glasses for reading. And I thought to myself, you know, I started feeling sorry for myself. And the moment I just think back and say, you know, my, my mother's old students would have killed for all the assets that I, that I have. So just, you know, take a deep breath, uh, regroup and, you know, just realize it's a, it's a bit of, of grit in the, a bit of sand in the oyster that eventually makes the pearl. Mm, oh, that's powerful. And even like, you know, you mentioned um, the Packers before, if you've got 6 billion in the bank, you wouldn't think that you could possibly be unhappy, but it's, it's often not about money or it's not about those things. Sometimes it is just a matter of perspective. I remember seeing this meme. Uh, I'd have to like try and find it, but it's like a, a person looking at a person in a helicopter and they're from a luxury boat. And they're like, Oh, I wish I could have a helicopter. And then it pans back and it's a person in a lesser boat looking at the luxury boat going, Oh, I wish I could have a luxury boat. And it just keeps panning back by back until it's some person sitting up inside of a window in a wheelchair looking down at a person just standing waiting for the bus you know and it's gone through all these levels but eventually it's like hang on if you just take a matter of perspective it's it can be sometimes tricky to take yourself out of your own funk but you probably have it like Gary V talks about how like something like 700 million people on earth don't have access to clean water mm-hmm. you know so if you've got clean water you're probably ahead of most so so perspective is is a massive thing so that's really interesting that that you can just sort of switch yourself out of that using perspective yeah i can think of other things but i know if i think of that i just think of those guys and the gratitude they practice daily for just i mean we live in you know very precarious times every october and november the earth goes through the torrid media shower and every year the meteors miss us 
um, you know, we hurtle through the, we're hurtling through the earth, at, through the galaxy at 1600 kilometers an hour. Um, it's a very fragile existence. And there are some people that just seem to know um, that it is and that it could end at any moment and, and just maximize it. Others sweat small stuff and don't realize that, you know, even if the earth survives, we only, you know, live a hundred years um, at the moment. And some people just know instinctively that's in their DNA to appreciate and, and, and practice gratitude. And others don't seem to be gifted with that and have to develop that. And they have, you know, they'll, they'll have other skills in different directions, but I think practicing daily, daily gratitude is, um, is, is probably the, the most practical way. Um, there's, you know, I see different products out. There's gratitude journals where people write down three things they appreciated every day. And people say that sounds a bit, you know, waffly, but you know, it's such a simple, beautiful thing. And you add those things up over the year and you've got 900, you know, over 900 things you were, you were grateful for over the year. And I think it's all about tipping the scales. There's enough sadness and, and people being negative. And, you know, you look at the Australian political scene at the moment, it's, you know, you feel suicidal if you, if you take it too seriously from, you know, what the, the depth has descended to. So you just have to, for your own mental health, you've just got to practice gratitude and focus on, on, you know, the good things we're, we're, we've been given this gifted, this complex organism on earth with magnificent people, interesting people. And, you know, we're, we're, we're educated now. We, we know all about the other, other animals. So, um, you know, what a, what, what, what a time to be alive, but, you know, sometimes, um, you know, even even being late on a bill or finding out your credit rating's been screwed or something like that can can just seem so um, all encompassing that it almost you know impacts your oxygen oxygen supply. So mm. that that gratitude piece, I think, is just so so powerful. Such such a foundation piece of every day. I like it. And, and if you think back, you know, over your years and, and, you know, in your time, like whether or not you feel that you are successful now, like, cause you know, you ask a lot of people and a lot of people are like, you know, it's this ever moving target and there's always a new level of success, but can you sort of think back to a time where there was a breakthrough where you sort of started to see yourself as a successful person? Um, the Asian cup was held in Australia in 2015. And that was the first time Australia had ever hosted an event as an Asian country it had always been in a European, you know, in our referencing our European uh, background and heritage. And a lot of people, and so we, I'd been doing multicultural marketing for, for, for 10 years at, at that stage. And I was one of the few people that believed that that event was going to be massive. But Eddie McGuire came out and said it was going to be a lemon. Um, the Asian community had been through a rough time in Australia, particularly the Chinese and Arabic communities. Um, you know, and they've been through a tough time. They've been locked out by the white Australian policy. They copped a lot of racism. People had been suppressing their identity. And I think suppression is always unhealthy. You know, you had a lot of Anglo-Celtic people telling them to, um, you know, surrender their heritage and buy into this Australian dream. But the Aussies, Anglo-Aussies hadn't sur surrendered their own heritage, still part of, you know, the Commonwealth and, you know, the Queen is still our head of state. So they, they felt, you know, there's hypocrisy there. And they'd never really been encouraged to engage and be proud of their ancestral identity. And a lot of them had turned away from it. So this event came and, you know, a lot of the Asian teams are very lowly ranked in the world. They're, you know, they're, they're high in Asia, but low worldwide. So a lot of uh, the communities down in Australia are disconnected from their, their football teams. But I believed if we um, got this, identified who the storytellers in each community were, gave them the ammunition to tell stories, uh, we could have a huge success on our hand. 
So, um, you know, China, um, all, the, all the Arabic countries, Korea, Japan, Iran, Iraq. We put on a community ambassador program. We researched heavily and we found out all of the stories behind all the players were com- that were coming down. And in video, uh, we translated these stories, Q&As. And once the community learned about these guys and learned about their dreams and what village they're from and how proud they are to come to Australia. And then people said to us, oh, um, you know, only 350,000 people are going to turn out. It's going to be an average of a crowd of 5,000. And we said, okay, we'll see. Um, So we relentlessly, and we armed these, we had a community ambassador program where there was uh, 300 community ambassadors. And we gave them the stories and we just, they went out and told the stories, their version of the stories in first language. And Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Canberra were just buzzing with this event. And and, and it ended up having 650,000 people came to it. Pound for pound, by far the most successful uh, event in Australian sporting history. And I remember the cynics saying, uh, because we had the ticket price at $15 for for the, for the, uh, the qualification games. And everyone said, oh, they won't pay $60 a ticket to watch once the semifinals come. Your strategy sucks. In the semifinal, in monsoonal rain out at Stadium Australia, 36,000 Koreans and Iraqis came out to support and sing and dance in the rain. And I remember talking to some people after that, and we did a a survey of the community ambassadors, and they said uh, 90% of them said they felt more Australian after this Asian Cup because their identity had been given room to breathe and they were really grateful to Australia that they weren't, didn't have to suppress their identity. And we got 83% above uh, the crowd estimates that made a $25 million profit, which was invested back into uh, grassroots football. But most powerfully, um, it made our Asian communities proud to be Australian and of their heritage. And I remember that as a moment thinking, um, you know, all of everything I've done in my life to date crystallized in this one moment that I was able to deliver joy to millions of hundreds of thousands of people in stadiums and millions of people across Australia to bring these communities together. Cause a lot of them disconnect uh, out into the burbs and weren't getting together. And I just remember feeling, wow, this is a breakthrough moment for Australia. And I was you know, right at the center of it. And, and I, one of the architects of that. Mm. When you talk about, um, you know, one of your things is wanting to make an impact on others. And if people were in a position where they were feeling suppressed before and then through this event that you, again, you, you know, stuck to it, pushed through even in the face of people saying it's not going to work, don't do it, don't bother, uh, you may have then unlocked so many different, um, you know, people's hearts to be able to then become ripples wherever they are. And, and like you said, bring a community together. So for me, that just sounds like absolutely uh, a, a special, special um, thing that you've done. And who knows if those ripple effects are still carrying on in those communities. Yeah, there's still people that have Asian Cup Community Ambassador on their LinkedIn, still have it on their email. Um, that acknowledgement piece, that respect piece, that not telling people that they're good or bad by what effectively is an accident at birth. Nobody has any say in that at all. Mm. Um, um, you know, that dramatically uh made people proud and, and, that, and that Australia had hosted that event, then there's a positive reflection back on, back on Australia. And these people have two identities and you don't just get off the plane and feel Australian. It, it takes, you, you, we don't get off the plane in Japan and feel Japanese. It takes a long time and people have to make you feel included and include you in things. It's, um, it's quite, quite an art form, um, you know, build, building a multiple identity. 
but that fast-tracked the Australian identity for a lot of people. And that's counterintuitive to what you would think, making people support their, people wouldn't naturally think making people support their old country would, would re- reduce their wanting to support Australia. Mm. But funnily enough, the opposite happened. Very interesting. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying um, this, chat, this chat today, Patrick, so I really appreciate it. So from one question I'd love to ask is, um, you know, from your perspective, if people were wanting to achieve greater levels of success in their lives, what would your three tips be if you had three? The first is um, do what gives you energy. That's how you know whether it's your thing because you have to be on, at some stage, you'll have that moment of reckoning. You might have enough money in the bank. You might be just plain miserable or you might just be going along living a you know a good healthy life but uh there's the nagging the nagging voice and and deep down you know what you should be doing uh because it gives you energy when you think about it or dream about it you just you you pep up and energy is the fuel of of persistence uh which is important uh because you're going to get a lot of no's particularly if you're going into something niche or you're a pioneer and studies on depression have shown that, that 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 lack of energy is um is, is, is the hallmark of, of depression. And interestingly, when I, when I wrote my book, a uh, book came out a couple of years ago, I did a deep study on Maori and Samoan cultures because the person I wrote about was half Maori, half Samoan. And the Maori in New Zealand called it, call it Maori noho, which is slumbering life force. And that means you've just lost, you know, and, and that's a contributor to a lot of suicides out in, in the country for Maori where people just lose their energy and, and slumber. Um, so ultimately, when all is said and done, um, it's whatever gives you energy, you know, whatever makes you lose track of time, uh, that's what you've got to do. And you know that instantly by the fact that you'll get up at 5am and or work till one in the morning, or you're just thinking about it all the time, or, you, or your friends tell you to shut up because you're talking about it all the time, you know. Um, another one is, uh, another tip is acknowledge everybody that helped. Um it always saddens me when I hear someone say they were self-made, which is a, a kind of revolting term that ignores everyone who is invested in you. And people say to me, I, I'm, I'm a soccer coach of my son's soccer team. And people say, you know, why do I turn up three times a week to be basically abused by these kids? And I told them it's because people invested in me and that's the circle in life. That's the circle in life you have to honor. Um, and I think that's, that's super important. And the third is um, seek positivity. Um, there's negative demons all around. And by seeking positivity, um, you know, you, you'll, have, uh, an, uh, you'll have armor against disappointment and death and the stuff that swirls around. And um, seeking positivity, I think, means, you know, sometimes you uh, don't sweat the small stuff because you're just caught up in... Um, you know, just all these positive things, all these positive examples of people that are winning, that are that are going on their own hero's journey. And one and three A, um, don't think you're too old. I mean, Thomas Keneally has just written an unbelievable book at 83 years old. And penicillin and, and modern medicine have given us another 40 years over our our medieval descendants. And you really can go as long as you want with your passions, um, because with age comes wisdom and calm which you don't necessarily have when you're, you're, you're young. So I say, do your thing to your, to your deathbed. And three of the things that I love in this world, rugby league, boxing and, 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 and books, all have great respect into your 70s and 80s. There's no age limits. Wayne Bennett, you know, the super coach is well into his, his, his 70s, the new, new coach of the Dolphins. 
um, the boxing coaches, you know, I know a boxing coach in Melbourne that coached till he was 95. You know, whilst other people are feeling irrelevant and, and tucked away, he's in an, an industry that really respects age and, and respects the wisdom that, that, that comes with that. So, um, yeah, that everyone always has room to be a late bloomer and, and unless it's you know, something physical like, uh, you know, lifting great blocks or, you know, rugby league, I wouldn't be recommending playing rugby league into your into your into your 60s but you can always play touch football they're bringing out a new thing called walking football uh where for older people where they walk around there's not contact you passing and it's surprisingly growing at a at, at, at a, rem- a remarkable rate so um yeah they're my they're my tips interesting so interesting i like there's so much that i've taken from the chat today i really have absolutely loved uh, being able to go through all of these different things. And so if people are wanting to follow along on your journey, like, is there, you know, a place where they are best to reach out to you or follow or watch what you're putting out? Patrick Skeen at, uh, I'm a cultural pulse on LinkedIn. So just look, just do search for Patrick Skeen. So that's where I, I do my daily blogs and I have a bit more fun on Twitter. That's Patrick underscore Skeen, but it's not really a storyteller's paradise uh, Twitter, it's more sort of 60 meter sprints rather than a marathon. Mm, terrific. Well, th- thank you so much for taking the time to come and, and have a chat today, Patrick. My pleasure, Tom. It's been great. Thank you. And for everybody tuned in, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. I certainly appreciate you being here, giving your time, listening. If you can like, comment, tell a friend, uh, that would be great. But really, I look forward to catching you on the next episode. I'm Tom Bell, and I'll talk to you soon.